I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Dettloff. All right, folks, to say the very least, it has been a tough few weeks. We've been really struggling to think up a, a really good way to, I think, you know, um, uh, do justice to all of the ongoing political struggles and situations, um, as well as kind of like uh, do an episode that people would enjoy listening to. And it's it's all very hard. Um, of course, we're talking about the police murder of Dante Wright and also the recent release of the video of the police murder of the the 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago, which is all just like kind of too much. Um, it's a lot to sit with. It's a lot to process. Um, thinking through the uh, just the in- explicit and awful injustices of those situations is just like kind of paralyzing and um I don't know. Like, what do you even do? <laughs> what do you even do when uh, you face those types of uh, injustice in the world? Uh, I mean, um, something that's really, I don't know, Dean, maybe we can kind of just like say a few words about it here. Um, I heard about the news earlier today about Adam Toledo. Uh, we're recording this on the 15th, if that's any, <laughs> if that's any orienting date. Um, but Lori Lightfoot, the uh, mayor of Chicago, made some comments um, in a New York Times article that she just wants people in the city to stay calm. And to me, that is beyond belief. I have no idea how you could possibly stay calm in this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a bizarre thing to say. I think because it's also totally ineffectual, I guess. Uh, I feel like the last thing you want to say to really calm people down when they're rightly pissed off that uh, you know 13-year-olds are getting shot um, is to just tell them to chill out. Uh, I feel like the only way you'd really calm people down is if you were like, listen, I'm the mayor and I have political power and I'm going to wield that in a way that makes sense that stops this from happening. Um, Telling people to be calm is not the way to do it. Uh, It kind of reminds me of, you know, even people like Martin Luther King and lots of others who are, of course, uh, you know, they would prefer people not to riot. It's always the the famous sort of line that the riot is the language of the unheard and, um, you know, uh, calls to be calm, I think, are coming from the mayor for obvious reasons in that political situation, but they're going to come from all kinds of Christians, and Christians have really uh, bad ways of thinking about politics and unrest, and especially ways of thinking about uh, people being shot and other people getting pissed about that. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough thing to. <laughs> it's a tough thing to know that you're just going to get frustrated a lot in the next few days. Yeah, totally. It to me, it just seems like. Uh it seems like such a gross thing to ask people to do or just like a statement to make. 
because I mean, what you're asking is just for people to not do anything in the face of something that's awfully and un- awfully unjust, right? Like it just seems like the the craziest thing to say to some some people who are like obviously going to be upset. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's a bad thing to say. Maybe she shouldn't have said that. Yeah. Um. Well, in light of all that, I mean, we're kind of trying to get through, uh, pro- process some of these big feelings we have, um, and uh, figure out maybe like what to say about it or like what what kind of comes through, um, you know when we're thinking critically as uh, leftists and Christians about this whole thing. And if you follow us on Twitter, uh, you'll know that one of the ideas we've been like really sitting with and thinking through a lot um, throughout Lent and, and now through Easter is uh, where is crucifixion happening today? Um, this is a sentiment that we've been borrowing from Lydia Wiley Kellerman and all the other folks at G's magazine who just published a really, um, a really timely issue on the idea of resurrection. Um, I mean, crucifixion and resurrection, these are ideas that kind of go together. But um, the crucifixion part, I think, is so much easier to identify as a political way of thinking than resurrection is. Um, you know, it's it's not much of a stretch at all to map the police murder of these like these two young black men onto the idea of crucifixion or to map on the idea of like uh, people in covid onto the idea of crucifixion. I think that all makes a lot of sense to do that. And I mean, I think a lot of people have been doing that throughout the the pandemic or throughout the last um you know, last summer's uprisings uh, around Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and stuff. So uh, the difficult part, though, comes with, you know, Easter having just passed. Now there are even more big tensions to think about where, um, I mean, for Christians, we can't just think about crucifixion. We have to think about what comes next, um, the the resurrection, which is um, uh, admittedly for me right now, a very hard thing to think about when I'm very mad. it's just a, it's a, I think maybe a, a tense, uh, some kind of tension that's in there. You know, crucifixion is an easy thing to look at, look for, and find in the world, but resurrection is a little bit difficult, especially when things are uh, particularly bleak. So, in this episode, I thought it might be a good idea to um, stretch our brains and our emotional capacities, and um, c- kind of like Lydia has said, um, instead, but instead of looking for where we see crucifixion in the world, we'll, we're going to talk about where we might see resurrection happening. Yeah, I think it's important to think that through, you know, uh, I want to preface this by saying I've always kind of struggled with resurrection language um, in the middle of political discussions, because like you said, crucifixion is easy to tie politics and theology together, right? It's a person getting killed by the state. Um, resurrection often feels very ethereal or kind of otherworldly, or it's it's one of those like supernatural bits of Christianity that, um, you know, is maybe important in your imaginative life and your spiritual life, but can be hard to create or doesn't more naturally lend itself to creating some material relationships. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's hard too to for me to be thinking about resurrection in light of uh, these murders and just in a world that's kind of surrounded by death right now, I feel in the middle of a pandemic. But at the same time, I mean, I've been spending a lot of time in the last uh, several months reading liberation theologians talking about things like resurrection. And uh, I don't know, I think there's it's maybe an important moment to also be reflecting on uh, what would it mean to think about resurrection in a way that's materially efficacious and uh, gets us not past the crucifixion at all, but allows us to uh translate some of our understandable and reasonable rage at those kinds of injustices into some other way of, of living together uh, after that. And luckily for us, um, a lot of other people have actually done some of the legwork for us. So it's not like we're uh, 
we're out here philosophizing anew or whatever. Um, <laughs> we're going to pull from a lot of folks in this episode um, who have a lot of good things to say about the ideas of resurrection, redemption, renewal, and um, what those things might mean materially. So, yeah, just a big overview, I guess. The point of this episode, as always, is to definitely avoid theology outright because we aren't theologians and we aren't good at it. But instead, to think about a theological concept or idea like the idea of resurrection through a more Marxist lens uh, and see what it has to tell us about our own politics or uh, what or the way we should think about politics. Um, so maybe just to get us started, Dean, um, we can we can start with uh, the person we've been talking about the most so far, uh, Lydia Wiley Kellerman, um, who was on the show not too long ago. So go back and listen to the episode we did with her about her new book, The Sandbox Revolution. Um, but I'm going to read an excerpt here from the essay she uses to introduce the a uh, new issue of G's about resurrection. Uh, the essay is called, Do I Believe in the Resurrection? Uh, again, by Lydia Wiley Kellerman. Do I actually believe in the true reality of the resurrection? Did Jesus come back to life? I don't know. Does it matter? What I do know is that I would stake my life on it. I believe in mystery and wonder. I believe that systems of murder and oppression do not have the final word. I believe in life and compost and the seedling lingering under the snow. I believe that resurrection is something we practice with our lives. I think this is such a good place to start because, um, I mean, first of all, Lydia is a very wise person. <laughs> She's very <laughs> smart and a very good writer. Um, but I think that uh, what she does is helps us um, maybe take a step back from some of the, like you were mentioning earlier, Dean, the more like ethereal um, and otherworldly parts of the idea of resurrection. Um, I don't know, uh, growing up in a very evangelical house, resurrection was something that was like triumphant. Um, you know, Easter Sunday was like this huge, weird party. Um, not a great party that you want to be <laughs> at, but it was one for sure. But um, when Lydia's talking about it, it's it's something different, right? Doesn't mean that Jesus actually comes back to life. I don't know, um, just like she says. Um, but there's some kind of logic there really worth investing in. Um, and that's really important to, I think, being a Christian, but also just, um, I, I mean, you know, apart from that, there's maybe some bigger political ideas happening too. Um, believing that systems of murder and oppression don't have the final word is a type of hope that I think is a good one to practice. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always very skeptical, I think, of optimism, but I think um, that as a fundamental belief is a really important one for Christians on the left. Uh, you know, being a complete pessimist and thinking that, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, the, the systems of oppression will just continue to ravage our communities and people until we until we all die is uh, is not an idea that I think can survive if we if we think about resurrection in a political way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, too, what I love about this uh, piece from Lydia as well is it always is drawing us back into uh, what, it, what would it mean to practice resurrection in our lives? Um, not to just see it as this thing that's, you know, very far off and, and left to our theological imagination, but something that you might be able to think about in your daily life or in, in an organizing meeting or something like that. Um, and I think that even trying to uh, build the bridges between that theological imagination and that material activity is such a challenge. Um, it's hard, I think, too, because resurrection often becomes an excuse for, like, putting off hope for redemption into the future yeah. or coming up with cheap hope or something like that. Um, I think Lydia is really trying to force us not to do that, right? That uh, compost is the resurrection or uh, seedlings under the snow. That's the resurrection. Um, and I don't know, maybe this is a good way to bring in uh, another voice and we can put them together a little bit. Uh, 
So I contributed to that issue uh, with the NSA on Bolivia. And when I was writing it, uh, I, I was thinking, what am I supposed to say about resurrection? I'm not very good at doing theology, etc. So I went to the people that are, <laughs> the liberation theologians in particular, and uh, I found this great essay by Ignacio uh, Elicuria, um, who was a, a Jesuit in El Salvador who was murdered uh, by U.S.-trained right-wing paramilitaries. Um, he has this essay called The Crucified People. And what I love about it in general is it's really trying to uh, not say that we should empty out the crucifixion and the resurrection of their kind of theological meaning, but on the contrary, that we should really force that theological meaning into the material world and sort of see what happens or interpret that materiality through it. So I'll read just a little uh, excerpt from it and we can keep um, pulling this out a little. He says... Uh, the crucified people has a twofold thrust. It is the victim of the sin of the world, and it is also the bearer of the world's salvation. But this second aspect is not what we are developing in terms of the Pauline died for our sins and rose for our justification. Uh, a stage focused on the resurrection of the people should indicate how the one crucified for the sins of the world can, by rising, contribute to the world's salvation. Salvation does not come through the mere fact of crucifixion and death, only a people that lives because it has risen from the death inflicted on it can save the world. The world of oppression is not willing to tolerate this. As happened with Jesus, it is determined to reject the cornerstone for the building of history. It is determined to build history out of power and domination, that is, out of the continual denial of the vast majority of oppressed humankind. The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone, stumbling block, and rock of scandal. Uh, and he uh, is, goes on to sort of uh, tie that that uh, Christological imagery to uh, what it means to be uh, a people in history. Um, I think uh, there's a lot to kind of clear up in some of this language. Uh, maybe we can do that together. But what I really like about it, um, just on the face of it, is it, it really drives home that idea that salvation uh, in for Aecuria is not this kind of one-time event that Jesus accomplishes on the cross by solving a metaphysical equation but it's actually a, uh, a lived reality that all of history is invited to participate in, uh, and it privileges the people who are being crucified as people. So it, it kind of expands our horizon of thinking about resurrection to start thinking about what would it mean for people to, uh, to rise up and uh, reject the death that's inflicted on those people every day. Yeah, I mean... Um... The thing that I always struggle about with with theology is the I mean, I'm sure it has more to do with the way my brain maybe processes some of this just because of my underlying systems of knowledge or whatever. But it does seem otherworldly, even when Elicuria is writing. about yeah. it. But I mean, when you kind of dig in, though, I mean, what it means is actively acting against those uh, those regimes of death. Right. It, it means like. Um, it means uh, finding ways to make sure the crucified people are uh, are resurrected, I guess, but but not just in like the spiritual sense, but uh, in a more political sense. I think that's a really um, a pretty powerful idea that um, can help us maybe stave off, or at least me, um, me alone, stave off some of this otherworldly thinking. It's it's not uh, it's not pie in the sky. It's like uh, resurrection is what we're doing um, when we're fighting against the systems that will inevitably kill people, uh, ruin communities, and uh, destroy lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, too, there's something about Elicuria's understanding of salvation that's really important as well. So I agree, uh, not being a theologian, I'm, I sort of struggle to, to make this matter in a certain sense. 
Um, but in the broader context of the essay, El Curia also says um, what's fascinating for, about his his idea of like Jesus and salvation is that the he doesn't have this kind of view of uh, you know we all we all have our, um, our our legal trouble with God and Jesus has to to die to get us out of that legal sentence or mm. something. Um, it's rather that we're stuck in these system we're burdened by systems of oppression and we have to be saved from them. Um, but what's great is again, uh, Elicuria doesn't want to leave that in kind of the single event of Christ's death. Um, but he wants that to be a, a thing that, um, moves history in a particular direction. And I, I like it too, because you might come away from this with the impression that Elicuria is, is putting the burden of salvation on the oppressed, uh, so, which, which is a very bad thing to do, right. To sort of fetishize the oppressed as the people who will save you mm-hmm. or save everybody else. Um, on the contrary, I think what he's saying is if there's ever going to be any kind of salvation, it will only come by virtue of the people who are the most oppressed uh, having the the kind of um, agency to get out of that situation. And I think that's a, a challenging word and an important one to hear when, you know, the whole world is operating on a, a global economy of death, but also when we're seeing uh, the oppression of people in real time, like on the Internet, uh, on Twitter, scrolling through, seeing it on TV. Um, it's important to kind of think through what does it mean to think about salvation in light of the people who are being actively crucified every day? Yeah, I think so too. Um, one line that sticks out to me from this, um, the reading from Elicuria, um, I'll just, I'll read it again. I mean, I know you've done it, but I don't know. I'm going to repeat it. It's my podcast. I can do what I want. Um, <laughs> uh, Elicuria, this is the, this is the part that sticks out to me. Uh, salvation does not come through the mere fact of crucifixion and death. Only a people that lives because it has risen from death inflicted on it can save the world. I mean, kind of what you were saying, I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking back to like that. Uh, I don't know, man, maybe like a month or so ago, there's like this wild Twitter discourse about whether or not Jesus had to die or something. Right. And, um, <laughs> and for some reason, like that's what's echoing in my brain as I'm reading this. And um, I, I guess what's what's important is like that theological conversation is completely nonsensical if you think about salvation in this different way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it's not about whether or not Jesus dies or uh, has to die or if God makes Jesus die or some kind of like weird um 12-dimensional chess of uh, Christian theology, but it's instead about the fact that people live on after that death mm-hmm. or find ways to come back after that death. Um, you know, it's uh, it's not about, like, the metaphysics, I guess, in this way of thinking, but it's about the struggle that uh, stems from um, resisting the those certain res- those regimes of death, whether they're, you know, um, they're just capitalism outright or... Um, uh, police shooting people in the street or whatever um it's about the struggle that comes after death that uh that where that's where the salvation comes from i suppose Mm -hmm. it really kind of reminds me of that really classic uh gramsci line uh the pessimism of the the intellect sorry the pessimism of the intellect the optimism of the will um yeah you know the pessimism of the intellect is basically knowing that the world is crucifying people all the time um mm-hmm. but the optimism of the will is is i guess that sort of hope of resurrection that uh just because everybody's getting crucified or specific people are being crucified and, and oppressed um that doesn't mean that you can't work to try to change and abolish that system of oppression and i think that is like such a, an extremely hard thing to hold on to and i want to be clear too it's like very important to say that if you don't feel that way it's it's fine <laughs> like like sometimes it just feels very bad and totally helpless and i think people on the left and Christians in particular need to be able to understand and metabolize that affect. Um, 
but it's also, uh, you know, the, the promise of, of resurrection in this kind of liberation theology trajectory is that um, resurrection means that people get out from under the thumb of oppression. Uh, it doesn't mean yeah. some kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, future-oriented event that you'll figure out when you do finally die yourself. It's uh, This is a horizon that we're working toward right now because that's what it means to believe in it or something like that. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you j Just a minute ago, you said does it mean it's a future-oriented event, like an eschatological event. But I do think that there is something that we can say about time and salvation that might be important, uh, especially in this in this register. Um, one of the metaphors that uh, Lydia uses is is the seedling under the snow. And um, there's a... I, I, I think that is actually kind of maybe an important way to think about it, too, that um, it's not just like crucifixion and then resurrection like i mean like listen jesus did in three days that's great great for jesus but i mean maybe the rest of us we need, we need some more time mm -hmm. like resistance takes time and like um the metabolizing of um of death takes time and like understanding um what it might mean for us takes time and uh yeah laying in wait under the snow though um is it's uh, to me it's such a good metaphor because it it does reference that like that resurrection moment um it might take time for a community to process something or it might take time for us to come to terms with, with an idea or to even know what to do or how to act or whatever i guess like uh you know in the christian narrative of easter you get like this immediate resurrection and i don't know it doesn't work it doesn't work like that when it comes to uh the societal um <laughs> the societal level uh you know uh you need, you need time to put down the roots or for the snow to melt or whatever the whatever the added bit of the metaphor is mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think it is important to to keep it that way. I guess I meant uh, it's not future logical in the sense that it's like a future that never comes. Um, with, right. You know, it's not like the the left behind situation <laughs> or like dispensationalism <laughs> where one day you'll just get like raptured up there and you're just kind of waiting around for it to happen. But it's like it's the kind of thing that, yeah, like it comes in its own time, but it comes sort of on this plane in that respect in an important way, you know. Like I said, I'm, I'm not a theologian, so it probably comes on other planes, too, <laughs> like in some other <laughs> theological way or whatever. But I leave that to theologians to figure out. I think uh, for me, you know, again, pulling back to the Lydia uh, rhetoric, too, um, what does it mean to kind of practice resurrection with your life um, in a world dominated by oppression? It means that you have to be working toward some kind of uh, way of of getting rid of that oppression, um, making resurrection happen, <laughs> making it happen sooner than later, I guess. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, when we were kind of writing some notes up for this episode, um, we were kind of trying to gather the threads, like who are people who help us politically think about the idea of resurrection? And, um, you know, we got Elakiria, a theologian. We've got Lydia, a very good, um, a very good and smart person uh, who writes this great magazine that we love. <laughs> and um, I think that's all very philosophical enough. But it wouldn't be a Magnificast episode with Dean and I only if we didn't mention Walter Benjamin. <laughs> we do it all the time, and we're going to do it right now. Um, there is a theme in Benjamin's philosophy of history um, about this, uh, what Benjamin calls like a weak messianic power. And um, I think that uh, it's, it's a, a different spin on redemption. It's a different take. And uh, it's interesting just the same. So I guess, how about this? I'll read this thing, Dean, and then you can tell me what it means. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. That sounds easy enough with Walter Benjamin. <laughs> yeah, cool. 
Um, <laughs> great. So I'll just kind of jump in here, and uh, and then you'll you can you'll be the one to elaborate on it. <laughs> yeah, right, um, right. I'm I'm the student in your class reading it, and you're the teacher. <laughs> All right. Uh, Walter Benjamin says this: Our image of happiness is indissolubly bound up with the image of redemption. The same applies to our view of the past, which is the concern of history. The past carries with it a temporal index by which it is referenced to our redemption. There is a secret agreement between past generations and the present one. Our coming was expected on earth. Like every generation that preceded us, we have been endowed with a weak messianic power, a power to which the past has a claim. This claim cannot be settled so cheaply. Historical materialists are aware of that. Okay, hang on. I, I was going to tell you you can explain it, but this uh, this passage from the philosophy of history, um, this is the, the second thesis. If you're if you're reading along, if you you heard me say Benjamin and you went to your your bookshelf and pulled it off the shelf. Yeah, and, you like, paused the through. podcast uh, right. to make sure that you, you got your scriptures and uh, you have a book. That's right. Uh, man, there's so many things to say about Benjamin, but he is. I mean, his uh, just great prose. It's it's fantastic. I love it. Um, some the uh, the secret agreement between past generations and the present one is a great turn. I love that phrase. Um, all right, Dean. So lay, lay it out for me, man. Just to, let me know what he's talking about here. Yeah, um, Benjamin is always a, a good person to think with, especially because nobody ever knows what he really means. So you can say whatever you want. Nobody can tell you that you're wrong. Um, you know, I think uh, at least what I've always appreciated about Benjamin is he has this um, this way of being. Uh, attentive to uh, transgenerational struggle or kind of the long um, the long horizon of struggle and I think that is also an important piece in talking about resurrection I want to preface this by saying so Walter Benjamin if you don't know who he is he's a German Jewish philosopher very important guy uh, a Marxist uh, thinker and I don't want to like Christianize Benjamin I think people do that a lot yeah and yeah, so that's fair. Listen, I'm not saying that Benjamin believes in the resurrection in a Christian way, and I don't want him to. Uh, but as a Christian myself, thinking about it, um, I think what Benjamin helps me to do is to continue to materialize that belief uh, in redemption, that kind of you know eschatological vision that one day all things will be well, and the lion will lay down with the lamb, and all the boots for war will be burned in a fire, etc. Um, I think uh, for Benjamin, like there's a similar sort of messianic vision of that that peaceful moment. But uh, to get there, you have to really uh, attend to the 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 not so peaceful, you know, the the struggle that's happening right now on this plane in order to to arrive at that space. And I think for me, that comes out especially well when he, he has that uh, bit about the secret agreement between past generations and the present one that our coming is expected on the earth. Um, there's something that really speaks to me about resurrection in that context, right? It's like, uh, on the one hand, there's this chain of history that's drawing us toward that eschatological vision. Uh, it's this dream that's kind of shared, a dream of liberation. There's also a way in which the people who've passed on, who, who have died, uh, they have their own kind of repetition in our own life or in our own consciousness, um, that they they experience a certain vicarious resurrection through our own efforts to to, to take on that torch and um, keep running with it and yeah so many evocative phrases and Benjamin that I think can help us think about things like resurrection and mm -hmm. redemption specifically yeah for sure um, one more of those evocative phrases is is the just the phrase weak messianic power yeah. I think that's um, I mean the, less less so as a religious idea I mean it it's he's using that religious language but um, I think this is a really helpful idea if you are a Marxist um, <laughs> Listen, if you read Marx, um, 
the revolution's coming so quick. You you could blink and you'll miss it, right? It's it could it could happen now or um soon, right? Like the contradictions of capital for Marx are um they're too much and it's gonna the, the socialist revolution's right around the corner as soon as the bourgeoisie um get overturned, right? That's that's gonna happen. But um the thing <laughs> the thing about Marx is that it's not it's not quite so simple. It doesn't happen very fast. It doesn't uh it doesn't seem inevitable as um, as some um, readings of Marx might might suggest. And I, I guess the reason I like the the phrase weak messianic power is that it does suggest that, like, uh, there is there is a potential for the redemption of people through um, real struggle that like things could turn out better than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a weak power. It's not for sure. Um, it doesn't come like it's not uh, it's not here right now because it has to be. It's just like it could be on the horizon and you're never really sure. And uh, man, it makes me think back to. Um, uh, well, OK, so Richard Gilmanopolsky has a book about um, revolution and communism, and uh, he uses this phrase, uh, uh, this phrase he kind of comes up with himself called precarious communism. Um and, uh, you know, the phrase is, it, I don't know, whether or not it's good branding, that's some, somebody else can decide that. <laughs> but what I think is really helpful in his writing is that, uh, you know, revolutions and like uprisings, they either happen or they don't. And like predicting them is very difficult and you can't really do it. Um, and anyways, all, all of that to say, I prefer I, uh, I, I like this way of putting it, though, that there's a weak messianic power in in uh, every generation that like maybe it will work out to something better than right now. Maybe there is some redemption on the horizon, uh, but uh, you're never sure. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, as you're saying that, it just makes me think, too, that there's something important about allowing the material expression of resurrection, you know, the side of eternity to be sort of fragilized. Um, mm-hmm. like. Maybe there's a guarantee at the end, you know, fingers crossed if the church is right, there's a guarantee at the end that everybody resurrects into their perfect, beautiful spherical bodies and everybody's uh, <laughs> enjoying their life. Um, but but until we get there, uh, practicing resurrection is is precarious and it is this kind of thing that's not guaranteed. Um, I think this is different, too, from uh, the postmodern theological stuff about fragilization, right? Like there's a lot of stuff in theologians like John Caputo or these uh, other kind of deconstruction theologians where they'll talk about, um, you know, the God who may be or a God who is insistent and not existent and all that kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, that stuff's fine, I guess, if you're into that sort of thing. But to me, I feel like it all depends on how you fragilize um, something like the resurrection or something like uh, the hope that God represents. And I think the way that Marxists do it or the way that someone like Benjamin does it or even the way Elicuria does it, is to say, well, the resurrection happens insofar as we can build the collective power to get there. Like, it's not because, uh, I don't know, it's not fragilized because of epistemological issues or because of, I don't know, something that Derrida said, (laughs) as much as I love Jack Mm -hmm. Derrida. um, But it's fragilized because, like, life is extremely hard and building that movement is incredibly difficult and you're basically up against, like, everything else. And... How we fragilize that, I think, makes a big difference. Yeah, totally. Um, I am not a person that likes to uh, poke fun at postmodern movements in philosophy or, or theology. Same. Because I think it's <laughs> um, largely it's, it's things I think I are really important and that I like generally. Um, 
but I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard not to see the the glaring distinctions that you can you can make between the uh, you know the fragilization of um, winning political power or winning a slightly more just world and like uh, you know the weakness of God or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe God exists or maybe God doesn't. And like, whoa, isn't that interesting? And like. Uh, I mean, postmodern theology is fine, but the, I'm much more interested in the question of of justice than I am about the existence of God. I like I don't really care that much, I guess. Yeah, or justice, <laughs> justice insofar as envisioned by Benjamin's like wild Marxist eschatology, rather than justice as envisioned by I don't know um, a conference, <laughs> a conference with a bunch <laughs> of theologians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, cool. Well, let's not talk about postmodern theology anymore. Let's talk about something more interesting yeah dean let me tell you about folk music for a minute <laughs> okay sure <laughs> <laughs> man that's a great transition i nailed it there <laughs> um all right so one other way you know like, like i mentioned earlier we were kind of gathering these threads together and uh, of course we we've got lydia we've got uh we've got walter benjamin but also what about um what about labor songs what about folk music that was a big that was like the first thing that came to my mind when i think we started talking about resurrections that type of political idea um, I mean, there's an overarching theme within labor songs in the United States, like the wobbly songs or other types of union songs uh, about movements memorializing their martyrs. And that's, I mean, it's a huge theme. You can find it all up and down every labor song. Um, but the one that does it the best and the one that I think is most interesting in the way that it does it is the song I Dreamt I Saw Joe Hill. Um, you're probably familiar with the song. If not, we'll play it at the end of the episode. Um, if you put if you put I dreamt I saw Joe Hill into Spotify, you'll come up with about a thousand different versions of the song. And I'm going to tell you right now, save yourself some trouble and heartache and <laughs> listen to the Paul Robeson version, because that's the best one. And everyone knows this. Uh, it's beyond dispute. No one's going to argue with me. Um, I'm not. That's but for yeah, sure. there we go. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, the Joan Baez one's good, too. Uh, the Pete Seeger one, it could be better if it was recorded better. But uh, the Paul Robeson one's the one you want to go with. Uh, the man has a has a beautiful voice and the song is like extremely moving and stirring. Anyways, uh, if you don't know, Joe Hill was uh, an old an old timey union guy, basically. Um, we could get into there, there's a lot more history that there's like real history that does exist about this person um, who was sort of like a, a musician in the in the early labor movement in the United States. He was a Swedish immigrant. He was uh, in Salt Lake City organizing and, um, you know, involved with the labor movement. And uh, he um, wrongly was accused of killing a cop and um, they ended up like shooting him for it. Um, and like like it was like a state execution. Uh, but anyways, the song I Dreamt I Saw Joe Hill last night is so fascinating because it's like, um, you know, it's the remembrance of a person who uh, is important to the labor movement, someone who put their life on the line for it. It's the the resurrection by way of remembrance. Um, but even even more than that, I, I, I guess like the memorialization thing is there, but I think it's even more than that in, in this Joe Hill song. Um, like I said, we'll play at the end of the episode, but some of the... Um, some of the, the language used in the song is really important. Um, so uh, the first part of the song kind of just tells the story of Joe Hill. Um, and uh, it's this kind of interesting back and forth. So on the one hand, uh, it's it's a person recollecting, you know, I saw Joe Hill die. The cops shot him. Um, but Joe Hill is there in this person's dream is like a ghost or whatever. <laughs> I mean, he's not dead. That's what he keeps saying over and over. Uh, Joe Hill doesn't die. Um, but the the next part I actually do want to read. Uh, this is sort of like in the narrative of the song. It's Joe Hill in your in your dream telling you these things. 
and these are the lyrics. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes as Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. That's it, right? And I think what's so fascinating about the the song of Joe Hill and this like kind of way of thinking about labor and organizing and politics and, and martyrdom too, that's a big part of it, right? Is that the, the death of a person uh, within a movement is important um, and it's remembered not in the sense of just like, man, remember that person that did a cool thing that, that you know, did so much for us or whatever. Um, but it's like that person's spirit lives on in a really important way in, in a sense that they've never died, that uh, you couldn't kill them if you even tried, I guess is it. Uh, the the ending of the song um, is from San Diego up to Maine and every mine and mill where working men defend their rights. There you'll find Joe Hill, right? This uh, extremely Christological, um, <laughs> Christological Joe Hill, wherever two or three are gathered mm-hmm. in the workshop organizing a union, that's where you find this dude. And uh, it's really a fascinating, um, a fascinating theme that I think crops up in, I mean, not just the labor movement, I think in other types of, um, uh, you know, general, like maybe leftist movements or other types of political movements, too, where people don't die. Uh, they are always kind of present in spirit in this way that uh, it precedes, though, their like just their memory. Yeah, Joe Hill's one, I think, very cool and very important historical example, right? Somebody whose uh, life um, lives on uh, in in so many radical ways. Uh, but I think, too, even the movements that we're seeing right now are reflective of that, right? Like George Floyd died. And, you know, it's important to say that, like, he is gone uh, in an irrevocable way, like in a way that uh, demands people mourn and uh, face up to that that reality. But George Floyd also lives on in people who are saying, you know, we can't breathe. It's not just George Floyd who can't breathe. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think seeing, uh, you know, it's important, again, to not overinflate this. Like, I I think, you know, saying uh, George Floyd is resurrected in a a political movement is an important political statement. But uh, you don't want to paper over the fact that uh, he also is, you know, killed by the state. Um, but there's this way in which uh, even when the state kills people who are oppressed, especially um, they they can't really like completely obliterate those lives. They can't really throw them into, right. uh, you know, a hole from which they never come out uh, because there is this kind of spirit of liberation that that stirs over all that kind of um, uh, uh, injustice and, and does kind of resurrect those people so that they do have uh, more words to say, whether it's in other people's mouths or in the streets in, in different bodies. And I think, I don't know, there's something um, challenging about that. I don't know exactly how to talk about it in a way that feels totally uh, adequate or appropriate or accountable, but I think there's something intuitively there where at least like if I'm thinking about the resurrection, those are the the touchstones that make it make sense. Um, you know, the execution of someone like Joe Hill, uh, which spurs the industrial workers of the world to go on strike, you know, in the in the woods in California or something, or um, the death of someone like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or, uh, you know, um, uh, all, all these people, unfortunately, that uh, the names have to kind of continually be added. But uh, but in the in the adding in the in the remembering of those names, they're expressed in a, a material way. I think there's something really profound about that. It's also worth drawing out too, like. In, in an attempt, again, not to paper over everything or come off as tone deaf in some way, that, like, um, I mean, anti-Black racism is a lot different than anti-union sentiment or something. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, of course. It's worth saying that, like, um, they're not, like, completely analogous situations. I guess what I'm trying to draw out is a similar movement in, in like, the way people remember. But, you know, like, 
um, Joe Hill is a union organizer who's like actively, um, you know, like trying to start a union and like do all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, George Floyd is a guy yeah. driving his car and like, you know, that's a whole that's like completely fucked up in a different way. Absolutely. <laughs> that's Absolutely. what I'm trying to yes, say. A thousand percent. Yeah. 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 It, it's important not to uh, conscript people into politics when they're just executed for trying to live their life. Yeah, like not saying that like uh, any person, uh, any black person who is like the victim of police violence or whatever would not be like invested in politics or whatever. But just like, you know, yeah, exactly. Not not conscripting people when maybe that wasn't even the situation. So something to be upfront about. Yeah, well, let's dig ourselves out of that hole because <laughs> we're obviously not the people <laughs> to sort that out. Um uh, I will make a good transition, though. I think that feels natural. You know, uh, James Cohn, um, I've been reading a, a lot of him in the last year or so as well. And I think uh, one thing that I am impressed by in Cohn's work is this ability to um, force Christian theological categories to make sense of uh, situations of oppression and specifically anti-Black oppression in the United States. Um, to try to make those theological uh, doctrines um, uh, express or confront uh, that reality. And for Cohn, too, a lot of people talk about uh, crucifixion with Cohn, and that makes sense, right? Uh, His last most popular book was The Cross and the Lynching Tree. There's a lot of time that he spends on the crucifixion. Um, But he also understood resurrection as a, a political uh, liberation. And I think that is, again, just an important thing to keep thinking about theologically, where it's like, uh, it's not to say that um, y- you should fetishize, again, oppressed people as the the ultimate vehicle of everyone's salvation, but rather to say there is no liberation, there is no material resurrection without the most oppressed people being able to live a free life, um, that that's what resurrection means. And I don't know. Again, I wish I wish I was good at theology because I'm sure there's probably a lot of <laughs> ways in which that would make a lot more sense to me. But there's something there that is really compelling. Well, there's one more thread we can kind of tie up here with this conversation. Um, so, you know, thinking through resurrection as politics, um, one thing we th- were thinking about that I guess was ringing pretty clear for us, too, is that there's also resurrection in the sense of attending to. Um, you know, building a society after a struggle, um, after a revolutionary situation. Um, again, uh, listen, we said we said Walter Benjamin, we've got him on the board here, but also Ernesto Cardinal is is the person that comes to mind, and the situation of the Sandinistas, just like I guess one of our one of our many interests on this podcast. But um, within Cardinal's poetry, I mean, uh, being a being a previous priest, being a, a person who was like actively involved in the uh, Nicaraguan revolution. And then after in like being deeply involved in the sort of re um, I don't know, the reformation of the state, <laughs> you know, I mean, like they, uh, um, you know, ousting Somoza and, um, you know, building a whole new society that is different. Um, you know, he's, he's writing this poetry and kind of um, thinking of resurrection um, in that work that he's doing, not just as a poet, but I think also as a, like a political figure as well. Um, so there's a few different places that the themes of resurrection come out in um, in Cardinal's poetry. One of them is sort of minor, but um, but very interesting, I think. Um, so if you uh, okay, if you're a longtime listener of the show, Ernesto Cardinal also wrote this other book called um, The Gospel and Soul and Taname, where uh, basically it's a transcription of conversations he was having with um, 
farmers on this little island, this like archipelago of islands in um, in Nicaragua. And it's really fascinating because it's just like him talking and they're talking about the gospel. They're talking about who Mary is. They're talking about the political situation. Um, lots of like interesting stuff in there. Uh, if you if you want to read what like Nicaraguan farmers thought about communism and the and the Bible, this is the book for you. <laughs> um, it's really fun. But anyways, what's really fascinating is that um, through Cardinal's writing and his poetry, and then even through the writing of other journalists who were writing about um, Nicaragua, you can kind of track some of these these figures that start in Solentaname and like. Um, I, I mean, like they they go and they take part in the revolution themselves, and they're like active. Um, two of the figures that are present um, early on in in the earlier writings from Cardinal are these people, Donald and Elvis. They're both figures I think that um, are in the Gospel and Sultaname. And um, I think in um, in Penny Lenoe's book, um, Christians of the Nicaraguan Revolution, is that right, Dean? Is that what's called? Uh, sorry, it's actually Margaret Randall's book, Christians of the Nicaraguan Revolution. Thank you. Jeez. All right. So in, the, in Margaret Randall's book. <laughs> Penny Lerner is also a cool journalist. Uh, there, there's a lot of very good ones. But uh, yeah, that one's Margaret Randall. Sorry, I'm just reaching from the top of my head and I forgot <laughs> the name of the person. Um, anyways, you can see uh, well, all I'm trying to say here is that you can track the trajectory of these folks that start in Gospel and Sultaname and go into these uh, into Cardinal's poetry. Um, but uh, it's man, I don't know. It's such a weird experience being very far removed from that situation and then reading about all these people. It is kind of heartbreaking in a lot of ways to read what they're writing early on. And then, then um, you see them eulogized in Cardinal's mm -hmm. um, poetry when they die. So I guess I, I just kind of want to read this quick, this quick excerpt from a poem that Cardinal wrote called to Donald and Elvis. Um, it's just a really small bit, but um, the preceding bits of, are of, um, of, kind of reminiscing about talking to them about uh, about the gospel in Sultaname, actually. So uh, Cardinal goes on to write, When I saw the disinterred bones of the two of you, I remembered you, Donald, and Sultaname mass saying that the resurrection was not skeletons coming out of tombs, but the survival and the consciousness of others. Um, I think that's such an interesting... Oh, so it's it's really... This is like Ernesto Cardinal's style, right? It's like sort of this documentary poem. He's just saying what happened. He's remembering a thing. But it's such an interesting performance of what he's talking about. Um, you know, he's he's saying um, that uh, I, I remember that in Sultaname, you were saying that the resurrection wasn't skeletons. It's about people remembering you. And that's like something that Donald said. But it's also something that Cardinal is actively doing mm -hmm. in the poem in this sort of like performing the documentary, the documentary poem of this guy's life. And uh, such a fascinating thing to do after someone who, I mean, obviously you have a pretty strong tie to passes in uh, this, this wild revolutionary situation. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's really neat to read it in that context too, or, or instructive because so there's resurrection happening on that one level, right? That uh, Donald is um, being remembered. And uh, like you said, there's this kind of performative way in which he's being resurrected through just the, the writing of the poem. Um, but the idea, too, is that Donald and Elvis both died in the struggle for the resurrection of the Nicaraguan people. And you see that so often in Cardinal. There's a certain sense of survivor's guilt, I think, in a lot of Cardinal's poetry. Um, but you also get the sense that uh, these people gave their lives so that other people could live in a truly free way. And that sort of double uh, piece of resurrection that uh, these people are being resurrected in the consciousness of Cardinal, but they're also being resurrected in the the uh, process of building a revolutionary Nicaragua 
Um, there's something about that, too, that I think really helps us draw out that materiality of resurrection and maybe brings us back to that fragility piece, too, right? That um, resurrection only happens insofar as we bother to try to remember and uh, bother to try to continue to sort of build a world where um, uh, crucifixion doesn't have the last word. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, all right. Do you want to do you want to read this other um, cardinal poem here? Yeah, there's a, a number of places where resurrection comes up in Cardinal. Um, here's one. This is from a poem called Oracle over Managua in a, a book called Zero Hour, but it shows up in some other collections, too. Um, I'll uh, read it a bit and then contextualize it. But he says, revolution is a function of evolution itself because evolution has a frightening velocity. From a stick came light. We enter into the Easter of the revolution. And uh, Cardinal has this like really fascinating cosmology, like he's really into thinking about atoms and cells coming together and science and kind of putting that together with his theology and his politics all, all in the same moment. And you get that in these lines. It's kind of all there. The idea is that revolution is a function of evolution itself, because evolution for Cardinal is um, this really wild uh, experience of things kind of coming together and changing and transforming and mutating um, and uh, trying to sort of put a political and theological gloss on that science, I think, is so fascinating. So there's this way in which uh, resurrection pushes us into a different political reality, but it also puts us into a different sort of cosmological <laughs> understanding too, right? That it draws us into uh, an understanding of our place um, in the biggest possible sense, our place in uh, the universe, in our political worlds, in our personal worlds. Um, resurrection has this really expansive meaning in Cardinal's poetry that I think is uh, a good way that we can draw connections to all kinds of other things uh, anywhere that people are being oppressed or, uh, you know, we're trying to sort out the material reality of these otherwise speculative ideas. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, Cardinal, what a guy. A lot going on in this poetry. Yeah, no kidding. I'll, I'll bring us to a, a final um, thing that we can get on the, the Magnificast board here, Matt, um, as we move to the end. And this is a, a quote from The German Ideology by Karl Marx. <laughs> um, oh, wow. Okay. Engels is in there, too, but let's be honest. This is probably a Marx one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Marx is a, a way sexier writer than Engels, and uh, I think you get it here for sure. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, it's hard to think about resurrection in a materialist way. Uh, but I do think that there are kind of resonances in the Marxist tradition that also point us to other political struggles. And I always think of this line in the German ideology. So Marx says in light of, or sorry, <clears throat> uh, Marx says, uh, we call communism the real movement, which abolishes the present state of things. And I think that idea, uh, we could sort of substitute resurrection for communism there as well, that we call resurrection the real movement, which abolishes the present state of things. Um, I think, you know, trying to think about, like, all the unrest that's going on right now um, and trying to put plot resurrection within that, uh, I guess I sort of want to make sense of resurrection as the abolition of death in the Christian tradition and thereby also the abolition of things that cause death, right? The abolition of police, the abolition of systemic racism, the abolition of uh, labor exploitation, all these different things. Um, there's this this place where resurrection and communism come together uh, in that negative movement. You know, they both point to a, a positive future uh, with all kinds of things that you can say about them. I think that's important. Um, it's not purely negative, but 
in the immediate sense, the hope of the resurrection is that all this very, very bad stuff can actually uh, be dismantled and be abolished. Yeah, I think that's a cool way of putting it, honestly. Um, it, it does make me think back to, uh, you know, talking about communism and love with Richard Gilmanopolsky as well, um, that uh, there, there's sort of like a, a similar logic, I think, between those things, right? Resurrection is about the redemption of people, um, you know, put, putting your life kind of up there for folks. <laughs> and um, communism is about um, practicing that type of love, too, that abolishes the things that would cause other people death. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good way of thinking. Um, it is a type of thinking that I think Christians are not <laughs> are not good at right now. Yeah. I mean, thinking about like uh, Jesus and resurrection is sort of like an Easter Sunday, um, a cool moment where you have a sunrise service and you eat the Easter eggs afterwards. That's great. But thinking about what resurrection might mean materially is something, materially is something that Christians are very bad at, mm -hmm. um, that it might mean the abolition of death and it might mean the abolition of things that cause death is, is a tough one probably. But um, I think that if Christians are committed to seeing crucifixion in the world, if that's something that we can, we can do, I think that uh, seeing resurrection in the world is probably something we can do as well. Yeah. And seeing it as something we have to sort of work toward um, something we have to achieve so that again, crucifixion isn't the last part of that story. Um, that's a huge piece. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. Uh, our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro this time around is by Paul Robeson. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe says I him standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I ain't dead Says Joe, but I ain't dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on organize went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you find your hill it's there you find Dreamed 
and I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he.